Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Charles McMillan, a professor in the Schulich Business School at York University and a former senior advisor to Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney. He's the author of the must-read 2022 book, The Age of Consequence, or Deals of Public Policy in Canada, which provides an insider's account of the big changes in Canada's policy and political landscape over the past 50 years. I'm grateful to speak with him about some of those changes, the trade-offs between big bang and incremental reform, and his proudest policy accomplishments and biggest regrets. Charlie, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you. Great pleasure to be with you. Let's start with a basic question. At this point in your career, what led you to write this book, and what do you think its key messages are? particularly for younger readers thinking about a future in the worlds of policy or politics. Having taught in different business schools around the world, from Japan to Poland to France and and Britain, I'm a great believer in policy analysis, which has an economic bearing, but too many economists downplay the political pressures, the institutional pressures, and in the last 50 years, the international pressures. We see this today, for example, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So if you want to invest more in, as the government is trying to do, in dental care or in medical issues as a result of the pandemic, there's only so much money and more defense obviously has trade-offs. And in Ottawa, almost as a referee, you have the trade-offs with the provinces. So more spending in on Medicare and on medical issues, it's easy to say more money from Ottawa, but there are trade-offs. And there are trade-offs for the provincial as well. So it's this study of trade-offs and the kinds of people that have the understanding and the mindset to realize that, you know, um, a candy today has consequences tomorrow, you know, more cavities or whatever. <laughs> And, and um, if you trace the various prime ministers, they struggled with these incredible trade-offs, some better than others. And, you know, I rate the prime ministers, but uh, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is the book is really about public policy, but sometimes you have historical consequences. And, and we live as a country in the sandwich between two nuclear superpowers the Soviets to the north, now Russia, and the Americans to the south. And both countries are not always right. 
and we're, we're caught in the middle. Yeah, there's so much there. And we'll come to some of those observations, including the role in trade-offs when it comes to policymaking. But before I get there, I want to understand a bit more about the, the research and writing process. Charlie, I'm struck that the book includes extraordinary details about the structure of Brian Mulroney's prime minister's office, briefing memos that you produced, meetings you attended, etc. Can you talk a bit about what went into ultimately producing this book? What materials did you draw from to reproduce such a clear window in what is a truly remarkable period of Canadian policymaking? Well, I have two particular advantages. I come from an educated family in Prince Edward Island. My father was a gold medalist at McGill and intimately involved with CMA, Canadian Medical, at the introduction of Medicare. And uh, I met all these famous people, including Chief Justice Hall, Paul Martin Sr., who was the health minister in the Pearson government, came to our house. And so I was always interested in less the personalities and more the, the trade-offs and the complications of policy. Brian Maroney failed in his campaign leadership run in 76. But he had it was surprising to him that he had another run in 83. But immediately after becoming leader, he wanted to focus on policy and quietly knew that if you get into government, you need two terms. He wasn't a one-term guy. And to make policy, he wanted to organize a policy unit, which involved civil servants, outsiders, and folks in the policy unit. And this was independent of the free trade debates, which came later and all that. And his concern was that it's one thing to campaign and win elections, but when you're in government, you got to make serious decisions. And the recent example of the chaos in Britain, you, you throw in Brexit, but whatever, of various leaders literally not really understanding how to govern. Liz Truss would be in the extreme case. And her budget was laughable. The markets were going to have a real effect on it on the pound the next day. And so Brian Maroney had a long-term view, like Pierre Trudeau, who all his writings, you knew what his priorities when he got into government. And the economy wasn't one of them. You know, it was the separatist threat, the Bill of Rights. And he explained that. You know, I quote a famous McLean's Magazine article where he laid it all out. And when he retired, so-called, when Joe Clark became prime minister, the obituaries of his time in office weren't great. And when he won the election in 1980, not really by campaigning, but, you know, unpopular government. So, he, you know, the liberals kept him 30,000 feet, 30, feet in the air. He had three priorities. But those three priorities showed the trade-offs. You know, the, the, the repatriation of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. And various other measures, you know, the trade-offs with women, with Aboriginals, whatever, and 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 the um, agreement to get Britain and the House of Commons to pass a bill because the the old Constitution was was a bill of the House of Commons in Britain. And and um, it's interesting, you know, I, my my history teacher at, at Sinensis was now QBI, Father Bulger. His thesis at U of T was on the Charlottetown Conference. And he used to talk about John A. when, you know, they, after the Charlottetown Conference, then they went to Quebec and passed the former resolutions of John A. getting the, the different British colonies to accept what they agreed to. John A. couldn't deviate at all. And this was all done, by the way, at the famous house or castle in Britain, 
Gorshane was attorney general. So he understood as a lawyer the constitutional issues in France, Germany, United States, and, and uh, Britain. And, and he, that led to a lot of his thinking about the nature of the Canadian Constitution. And Pierre Trudeau, of course, by imposing a Bill of Rights in a parliamentary system, was going to get the ire of Margaret Thatcher because Britain didn't, doesn't have a written constitution. Now, the other factor, of course, both in opposition and in government, I wrote regular policy positions, policy unit, which had a lot of help from civil servants, but I would write regular memos to the prime minister or the leader of the opposition then, and they were forward-looking. They were to think ahead of the day-to-day rat race of Ottawa. And this was a huge advantage. So I have six books of binders with all these memos. In fact, I, I came across by accident one yesterday. Even after I left Ottawa, I would write a yearly synopsis of the government around such issues as policy, party, special events, mostly international, that would have a bearing on Canada. Well, so you certainly uh, bring a lot of that historical analysis and evidence to bear. It's striking the level of detail that you outline, including who's participating in different meetings on different issues at, at different periods of time. We're only scratching the surface in this conversation, and I would strongly recommend listeners to to read the book. But I, I want to move the conversation, Charlie, to the Mulroney government's policy agenda. Uh, reading the book, I'm reminded how marked it was by a high level of ambition and a pretty low political risk tolerance when you think of free trade, the GST, constitutional reform, privatization, personal income tax flattening, et cetera, et cetera. Do you want to reflect on how the government thought about the small p politics of such an ambitious agenda and how policymakers ought to think about the costs and benefits of different types of reforms, including their sequencing? Maybe to put it differently, what's the case in your mind for a big bang approach versus a a more incremental one? Well, the, the title of the book, The Age of Consequence, meant that Canada was forced to make dramatic changes. Forget free trade and forget GST. Those weren't the issues for the election or in the mindset of Canadians or the civil service. What worried the civil service, and I think there's bearing on that today, but in the private sector, was the nature of competitiveness. Not just against the United States, but against Europe, and most notably at the time, Japan. Because, you know, we were we could always trail the United States by a margin. But as long as the United States and Canada were way ahead of the rebuilding of Europe and the rebuilding of Japan after the war, it didn't matter. It had an immigration effect, a demographic effect, because, you know, for every hundred immigrants we got, we knew we were going to lose 20 that would stay in Canada for a year or two and then go to the United States. But the auto industry is a prime example. The deterioration of management and the quality of cars in Detroit, which affects the biggest economy, Ontario, and the entry of Japanese exports and consumer acceptance of, you know, smaller cars, more fuel efficient cars, quality cars, that had a direct bearing. And if you go through industry by industry, we saw that pulp and paper was was the biggest industry, the biggest export industry in Canada at the time. And much later, the Financial Times wrote an article about the Canadian pulp and paper industry and said 67 plants 
are 50 years old or older, including in the home of the prime minister and Schwinnigan, the home of the opposition leader. We just weren't investing in in latest equipment. And this was an all-purpose concern of the cabinet, different ministers, and people like Don Mazakowski, who came from Western Canada, several people, ministers in Quebec, Ontario, and even some of them in, in Atlanta, Canada. John Crosby knew that we had to make serious change. But one of the things I'll mention about the Maroney cabinet, you mentioned the issues, but it was a powerful cabinet. And most of the members of the cabinet didn't have an academic background. They were practical people. And and Brian Maroney, you know, worked for the Iron Ore Company of Canada. And iron ore, you know, is used to make steel with coke. And the steel industry in, in Canada, but in the United States at all, was deteriorating. The, the most famous U.S. steel, but also Stelco and Hamilton, went bankrupt because they weren't producing the steel needed for certain products like cars. I can tell you stories about that. But what I'm saying is that Prime Maroney and the cabinet understood the competitive agenda and they brought in speakers. Brian Maroney, you know, the joke with, with Mr. Maroney in Ottawa was that you can't keep Brian off the phone. You can't, couldn't get Harper on the phone. When I would send memos to him, you know, I knew damn well that at night, you know, he'd be talking to his contacts around the world, checking on some of those things. Mm-hmm. And, and um, but the cabinet was, it was a powerful cabinet and urban rural. So David Crombie, for example, in, and Barbara McDougall in Toronto, or various ministers in Montreal, they knew the urban agenda that, you know, issues had to be, big changes had to come. The free trade thing and GST came later. And that was the deep, deep protectionism in the United States. And the prime minister and various cabinet ministers, including Jimmy Keller, who would meet members of Congress, senators, U.S. businessmen, all spoke about the deep-seated protectionism and what this would mean for Canada. Charlie, you mentioned earlier the book's title, The Age of Consequence. I, I want to take that up, if, if that's okay. The, the period you're covering represents the, the beginning and then the, the kind of full maturation of the post-Cold War era's so-called Washington consensus, or perhaps the free market consensus, or even pejoratively the neoliberal consensus. But that consensus seems to have broken down. I interpret the recent mix of populist politics, including Donald Trump's election in 2016, as the expression of an ideational transition. First of all, what do you think has led to the decline of the Washington consensus? And is it justified, in your view? And what's your sense of what comes next? How should we think about the place of ideas in our current political moment? Well, it's funny you say that. The age of consequence comes from, in effect, what you call the decline of the Washington consensus or a policy consensus based on, you know, the Atlantic Ocean. And various people, including Norm McRae, the economist, wrote these fabulous surveys on the Pacific century. And before I went to Ottawa, I lived in Japan. I visited 50 companies like Canon and, and Site Pentax and, and, of course, Toyota and whatever. And I could see for myself in the factories the changes. And it, went to Korea, went to China. Mr. Maroney, as president of the Iron Ore Company of Canada, sold iron ore to China. So he saw it for himself. Today, though, it's 
it beyond the Washington Atlantic-based consensus, so you think in defense NATO, but it's specific rim, but now includes India. So don't forget, India and China by population represent 40% of the world's people. And India today, but for the last 20 years, is the natural spokesman for what's called the global south, the poor countries. The reason the Doha free trade round failed as one of the international agreements, you know, with the WTO or its former name, the GATT, was the dispute between India and the United States. And so what we're faced with today is an extreme case of even decoupling. People talking about decoupling Western economies from China. And China trying to, you know, have its own reserve currency, deeply tied in with Africa, turning Africa into the low-cost labor factory of the world. And these are serious issues, and they affect day-to-day stuff. So, you know, I know there's a lot of debate about food, inflation, and all that kind of stuff, and I do the shopping on Sunday mornings. And I notice that some products are amazingly cheap, but two weeks later, they're very high. It's not necessarily for the products themselves. It's the logistics of getting them there. So if you like fresh orange juice, trust me, we don't grow oranges in Canada. In the past, we get them from California or Mexico or, or, or Florida. But now oranges come from Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, Israel, Portugal. And if you're at Loblaws or Sobeys and you want fresh orange juice, that changes the mindset for these companies. But, but it adds the complexity. And so the international order and, you know, roughly post Expo 67 and the rise of the Pacific Rim, led by Japan as the first non-white successful economy, which is another factor, changed Ottawa and it changed the competences companies and countries have to have to succeed, which affects the public policy process. You know, boards of directors, senior management, as well as um, civil servants and politicians. You rightly point to the rise of China as a profound change in the era that your book covers. Let me ask you, Charlie, at this point, how should Canadian policymakers think about China's economic model and its geopolitical position? Is a policy of engagement still worth pursuing? Or is it time to rethink the upsides of economic integration relative to the downsides, including, of course, the potential for China to weaponize our economic dependence? Well, what's happened in China is really interesting in the last seven or eight years. The countries that China learned the most from was Japan. And basically, if you look at Southeast Asia, what Japan did, the other companies followed. A clever mix between government policy and successful private companies. What has happened under the president of China is the deep, deep centralization of power, not around you know a group in, in Beijing, but around one person. And it's like Stalin, and he's used the weapons of government, including the KGB or 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 you know the state agencies and the police, because Stalin originally was a minister of the interior, which controls the police around one person. And China is too complex. You know, in in the old days, you could think of China as factions, like Japan in the 30s. The army faction, the navy faction, the private sector faction, the, the military faction, or whatever. That's all gone. But here's the question. The extreme case of that is decoupling. I don't think that's possible. 
because there are too many global issues that China has to be engaged in, climate change being the obvious one, but terrorism and various other things that, you know, fear China as well. Don't forget, the fear of China today is the opposite of the Soviet Union, the breakup of the Soviet Union. And central control, despite economic burdens, is the overwhelming political goal. And that's why a lot of the statements from Beijing, you know, blame the outsiders, blame the United States. But these are a lot, a lot of Chinese problems are problems created by themselves. And so we need really clever people engaged with, you know, the Australians, the Japanese, APEC, the Southeast Asian countries, as well as NATO partners to really monitor what the hell is happening. But there's, you know, there's an example of the trade-offs. In Canada, in the civil service, all but 8% of our diplomats are located in Ottawa. In my book, I explained, walk through, I explained the breakup of the Soviet Union because I've been there with Monty Quinter, as a liberal member of parliament, because we're doing the study on Kyrgyzstan, the breakup of the Soviet Union on December 18th, two days after my daughter's birthday, which I missed again. And then he called me Boxing Day. You know, no Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and all that kind of stuff. He writes like, repeat exactly what you told me. He couldn't believe it. And Gorbachev had called him. You know, the, the Russian flag would be over the Kremlin. So we need we need all the tools. And diplomacy in the international game is part of it. And, you know, uh, one of the problems in Canada today is that most small businesses don't export, and they don't export internationally. Most of our exports outside the commodity game is only with the United States. But in some industries, the United States are not the leaders. The car industry is a perfect example of that. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. You mentioned earlier, Charlie, the tendency on the part of Mr. Mulroney to consult with different business leaders and opinion leaders and, and so on. I want to take up that uh, subject. And it seems to me the politics of the 1980 had a lot of upsides. It was an era when you could do that. You could pull together a relatively small group of people and get big things done. A, a criticism would be, though, that the process tended to be less inclusive and less representative. Our politics these days are more consultative and broadly engaged, but they're arguably less efficient, slower, and inclined to pursue big reform. Talking about trade-offs, how should we think about that trade-off? Is there one between, say, political efficiency and political representativeness? And how do you think about the role of inclusion in explaining some of the changes that we've witnessed over the past, say, 10 or 15 years? Well, that's a really good question. Privately, I have kind of what you might call Macmillan's Law. New governments consult when they, they should act, and they act when they should consult. <laughs> So certain policies 
require consultation among different stakeholders. So example, I can tell you, we were up our eyeballs in 84 with energy policy, with foreign investment policy. And we had ministers and prime ministers and premiers like Peter Lahey breathing down our neck. But the good news, we had people in the prime minister's office that knew Western Canada and Mazagowski as Joe Clark, Bill McKnight, et cetera, Pat Carney, came from Western Canada and they knew the issues from Western Canada. So we prepared in opposition a whole bunch of policy papers and we were prepared to act. And it turns out the energy officials, the civil servants in the, in the um, Atlantic Accord, which was Newfoundland, we're stunned that it had issues about equalization. We had thought through this stuff collectively. The problem with, so some issues you have to consult a lot. Tax policy is a good example of that. Trudeau made a terrible mistake, Ben Benson, and you know, the rise of the, the uh, small business sector with John Bullock. But in, in some point, you have to act. and other point, you have to consult. It's up to the prime minister and his officials, including the civil service, to get an understanding of how much of each you have to do. I would argue that in too many issues, there's too much consultation and not enough action. But action means you gotta make commitments, including budget commitments, and use fudget. And one of the things when you look at consultation, it's stunning, I know CEOs who are ticked off at government today and previous governments, because they have to put in a lot of time. And it's like an academic debate. At today's end, what do you do? You go for a beer. There's no conclusions. Consultation is is an exercise in, it, it's really important, but you know, at the end, you're there to make policy. And that means commitment. And usually that means budget commitment. But there are other factors, time, uh, resources, people, or whatever. And so, I think the current government and previous government, they haven't had the balance correctly. You know, Mulroney wants a huge majority. That's one thing you're not talking about. With MPs from all across Canada, every province, east, west, and north, or whatever, that provides the legitimacy for bold action. And I used to say this to him, but I, I wrote that in lots of memos or whatever, that bold action is often the low-risk option, politically and otherwise. Why? Because um, one of the things I learned in Ottawa, you know, the government has a history of blue papers and green papers. So in eight, in 84, in Mike Wilson's budget presentation, economic update or whatever, there were 18 policy papers for consultation. My brother was Minister of Tourism, and some of the civil service said that PEI would never be a tourist destination when the Japanese flooding in to, to, to PEI. And, and, and Green Gables and all that, but housing, energy. And one of the consultation papers people forget, but it's in my book, was we had a consultation paper on free trade. And the previous government had options, including sectoral free trade, which I thought was nonsense. But it came as a shock to the political class, including the media, that the private sector agreed to start free trade talks. And don't forget, with Laurier in 1910, it was the private sector that wanted protectionism. And so you're, you're asking a really interesting question. And it's up to the, particularly the prime minister and his mindset, but also his advisors to, to understand the balance between 
the need for consultation and the need for action. I want to talk a, a bit more on, on this subject, though. Let me ask a related question. The, the provinces and indigenous peoples loom large in the book. What do you think of the state of Canadian federalism? And based on your experience, do you think we need some sort of exercise to reconceptualize the national government's role in policymaking and its relationship to other orders of government? Uh, no, I'm look. I'm a conservative on these matters. I think we have a fabulous set of institutions, you know, and law and order, the courts, and 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 uh, these forces. But I would make some changes. For example, I think the RCMP should get out of the business of being a provincial police force because there's so much international issues that the Mounties have to be engaged in. And don't forget, the FBI has offices in 40, 76 countries. People forget that. So a reordering. It's always possible. We had debates internally, but with Gordon Oswald Destin, who was the clerk of the council, who's really the author of separating trade from industry and putting in foreign affairs. And that was an internal debate. I think there's a case for a very powerful, strong, as they have in France or METI in Japan, for industry, which really involves products and services, and trade promotion. Because the new issue is how do you get startups to get scale quickly? And even in the United States, you know, they, uh, these startups have to have an international dimension to get scale quickly. Quickly is the, the operative thing. In some areas, Aboriginal policy. We've ignored Aboriginal policy. And there's a reason for that. For most people in, in um, lives in cities, they don't see the issues up front. But I lived in Edmonton. In Western Canada, Aboriginal issues are a big issue. And you see it. But you live in Toronto, you don't see up front on a day-to-day basis Aboriginal issues. And it's one of these examples where we've had policy denial. But the good news is, and I, th- I give Justin Trudeau a lot of credit for separating the two ministries, because David Crombie had the same role as Aboriginal uh, minister, of separating two things, one into the treaty obligations and one of the service issues. Because they're different, they're related, but different. And each are related to other areas. So a fabulous example, and I think we have a very adaptable system. I think it's fabulous that Clearwater, one of the great Atlantic-based fishing companies, is now owned by an Aboriginal group. And in Western Canada, there's stunning progress in these areas, including working with the private sector. And I think the Canadian federal system has amazing adaptability, but it takes leadership and it takes champions. And we need more champions. That's a good segue to my next question. Um, You've been less active in conservative politics for some time, but as we've been discussing and as the book outlines, you remain a key architect of one of the most successful conservative administrations in modern Canadian history. What would be your advice to Pierre Polyev and the Conservative Party in the current economic and social context? What policy areas should they be prioritizing as they prepare for an eventual federal election? Well, there's two points here. And this apply to, you know, I always like these books on the decline of a party. So Peter Newman, decline of the Liberal Party, and then Justin Trudeau wins national election. So you look at the Liberal Party in the provincial areas, very weak. The problem in Canada as a federal system in a very diverse country, and think of immigrants, and we're now 
probably 500,000, well, I think it's fabulous, 500,000 new immigrants a year. We need a big tent party. Less on pure ideology, because a lot of issues in government don't fit into that neat left-right dimension. It's more of a domestic versus international and the mix of the two. Sorry to interrupt, Charlie, but it comes back to an overarching theme of this conversation, which is one of trade-offs. Well, exactly. But any party in opposition today can learn one lesson from Brian Mulroney, and he gets the credit. You've got to be prepared. It's one thing to get be in opposition and oppose everything, but if you're successful, you're going to be in government, and you got to be prepared. And you need policies that bear fruit. So there's any number of issues facing all countries, including competitiveness. But if you look at sector by sector, I said a thing yesterday to a whole bunch of friends about technology tracking and where Canada fits in terms of, of China and other countries. That means that at some point, the private sector has to do more R&D funding. It's one thing for Ottawa to do it. The provinces don't do very much. But the issues are important. And, and that takes timing. But it also takes, go back to consultation. Like we had meetings with with Thatcher's PMO. We had meetings with lawyers, businessmen, academics, media, retired media guys. That's where the preparation comes in. And if you think, you know, question period and and high polls are going to get you win the leadership campaign, then you're indicate, you know, in preparation. Campaigns are interesting. Before Brian Maroney took over, Usually, when you look at national polls, liberals and the conservatives, Goldfarb for the liberals, Alan Gregg for the conservatives, the time the writ is dropped, the time the election is called, whatever the polls say then, the 60 days or the 35 days of the writ, there's no change. That's no longer true. Brian Maroney in 84 went in the election 14 points behind. Campaigning does make a difference. And the free trade election in 1988, you know, in the the period... We're talking about, say, the last 50 years, John A. being the exception and Laurier, the, the three great political campaigners were Brian Maroney, Jean Chrétien, and Justin Trudeau. Pierre Trudeau was not a great campaign, a campaigner. In, 88, in, in 1980, you know, uh, with the, with the um, fall on popular support of the Clark government, the Liberal campaign team kept Pierre Trudeau flying 30,000 feet, you know, for the 35 or 40 days of the campaign. And of course, he was up against Stanfield in, in previous elections. He was up against Stanfield. Dalton Camp was right. You know, Stanfield's a son of, son of a bitch to get elected. But if he, if he gets elected, he'd be there forever. <laughs> and, and these personalities do affect, um, you know, campaigning. Well, let me take up that point because uh, it, it's something you mentioned earlier. And I, I, I want to ask you Brian Mulroney won back to back significant majorities. Do you think that's possible in today's politics? Or, or are there no longer enough swing voters to permit that kind of electoral mandate? When you talk to young people, whether they're at lunch or, you know, going to a movie with their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, most of their life on a day-to-day basis has nothing to do with partisan politics. And whatever is the issue of the day in Ottawa doesn't amount to a row of beans outside Ottawa. And you fall into this trap. but. What most young people, including Aboriginals, including the young immigrants, what do they want? Economic well-being, law and order, in the sense of of less uh, violent crime and good education and good health care. 
But within that, there's a huge policy mix. I think, you know, the current agreement with, with Ottawa and the provinces on healthcare spending is a band-aid. It's not going to solve the basic thing because we have, whether we like it or not, a hospital-centered healthcare system. When I grew up, Dad started the Charlottetown Clinic. There was a Protestant Protestant group, the Polyclinic in Charlottetown. But if you were sick or you needed stitches or whatever, you went to the clinic. You didn't didn't go to a hospital. But in in Ontario, 88%, you know, when people feel sick or whatever, they go to outpatients at a hospital. And, and hospitals by nature because of the equipment and, and, and the quality of doctors and are really expensive items. You're wasting time for a lot of these people. So, you know, if you and I get in a fight and you get some stitches or whatever on your arm, <laughs> you know, a nurse can take out the stitches. You don't need a PhD or a, 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 a specialist to take out stitches. And so we, we have huge possibilities to make changes province by province. And we've got tons of talent in this field, but managing that whole system requires less ideology and less blame. And now we're back to consultation. Fix the damn thing. Let me put a penultimate question to you. I exchanged with a mutual friend of ours in advance of today's conversation who described you as an iconoclast with views on a wide range of subjects. What are some examples of issues that you've come to think about differently since your time in Ottawa? I think the role of our neutral, unbiased civil service is one of the great inventions of the British parliamentary system. And I would argue that the British parliamentary system is far more adaptive than the Republican congressional system in the United States. But we don't have now in Ottawa, in the civil service, but also in the private sector, the proper mix between the skill sets. That's why I was such a proponent of privatization. The idea that civil service can run Canadian National or you know, the, a mining company in Saskatchewan or, or Air Canada is crazy. I would go further. I think there are certain airports in Canada that should be privatized, including Toronto. One of the strengths of Brian Maroney, he was a businessman, and he knew the difference between strategy, you would say bold strategy, bold, bold issues, bold approaches, that's what strategy is about. But there's also operations, the day-to-day thing. And I've talked to liberals and I've talked to provincial people about the same issue. We set up in 1986, a cabinet committee on operations. Jared Don Mazikowski, who knew Ottawa really well. And to deal, to deal with day-to-day issues. You know, why, why is the trouble getting a passport? Why is it a problem at the Toronto airport? Why are, are um, uh, uh, people waiting for stuff? That, those are operational issues. So I don't think I've changed my mind. I firmly believe that operations and strategy are linked, but they're different fields. And we don't have a good mix in both in Canada and, and in, um, in uh, uh, Ottawa. And, you know, the private sector, look at Boeing. All the operational issues at Boeing on safe planes. Look, look at this crazy thing with with Norfolk uh, uh, Railway. Those are operational issues. But when you when you start cutting things, facts, you're affecting safety. And and food is another example. You know, when I worked at Canada Packers, there were PhDs from the Department of uh, Agriculture and, and Health checking the quality of the machines and whatever, which are all stainless. 
looking for bacteria. And they had the power to close the factory. So this operational and strategy, governments and um, companies know these issues, long-term versus short-term or whatever. And I think I'm more pronounced in those kinds of issues than I was when I was in Ottawa. That's a great answer, Charlie. I would just say in parentheses, the subject of state capacity, which broadly reflects some of your observations there, is a subject that we've been talking more and more about at the Hub. For me, one of the major takeaways from the pandemic is notwithstanding the strength of our independent civil service and and all the rest, that we've proven to have less state capacity than I think a lot of us took for granted. And, and that'll be something that, that policymakers need to think about moving forward, not just good policies, but the capacity to actually execute against them. And, and just on that, by the way, I come from a medical family. My brother was president of the and they would agree on 100% with that. You know, there, there are certain things that the decision should be made in the hospital with the doctors and nurses, and, and not by bureaucrats, and certainly not by politicians. And the evidence on the pandemic is that, you know, the more independent or nonpartisan, the better the popularity of the premiers. Final question. Looking back, what are you most proud of from your time in Ottawa? And do you have any regrets? Are there any files that got away from you or you might have handled differently or ultimately advised differently on? I enjoyed my time in Ottawa. It wasn't a fun city. Um, (laughs) You know, it's a city without humor. The best thing, you know, was was uh, Trudeau's uh, guy from Quebec said the best thing about Ottawa was the train to Montreal. My view was, it was the train, the, the plane to uh, Toronto. I don't think there were separation of files. A couple of areas. John Crosby was a, like Maroney, like Mazankowski, like several of the ministers, was a policy nut. He really enjoyed talking about policy. And, you know, he we set up a COA. A COA now is doing what it was supposed to do, very big in startups. But he was also the Minister of Fisheries. Department of Fisheries is a Ottawa-centered bureaucracy, but most of the fisheries on the East Coast and the West Coast. So I work with John Crosby to separate the, the department into three. An East Coast fisheries centered in Corner Brook or somewhere in Newfoundland, it didn't matter. Somewhere in BC, Prince George or whatever, it didn't have to be in Vancouver. You know, there's there's a dispersion of, of uh, talent. and um, But the regulatory stuff would be done in Ottawa. And I think ministers have to look at new ministers and existing ministers have to look at the machinery of government to deal with these strategic issues, but also the operational issues. And fisheries is a good example. I've, I've written a lot of stuff on food. Canada has that possibility because of climate change and various other things to be a food superpower. We can still be an energy superpower. Harper's speech in London, but no follow up. And the way they manage the pipeline debate and the politics of pipelines is sinful. And 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 so, you know, four pipelines in the works and none of them successful in, in Harper's term of government. And this gets back to your issues of consultation, including with Aboriginals, but also action. And I think the pipeline debate showed that action without consultation is extremely dangerous politically, but also in terms of actual outcome. One of the pipeline companies should have known better. They went into Montreal and, and had meetings with the with the uh, mayor of, of Montreal and the council. Nobody from the pipeline company spoke French. I, I mean, give me a break. <laughs> and, and so, you know, the, the, 
I, I don't think it's a question of looking back. I look forward. I think, you know, I travel the world and I'm just stunned of Canada's reputation around the world, including with G7 countries. There's something about us. We don't blow our own horns. We go about whatever we have to do. We adjust and we can build on that. And that means with, you know, not taken away from the provinces and not an Ottawa-centered thing. We are a federal system, including with the territories in the north. But the territories in the north, and George Stock and I at Boston Consulting Group did stuff for Asia Pacific Foundation with the Northern Gateway, because one of the great gateways is going to be the link between the Pacific Ocean and Alaska and Yukon across the Arctic to Europe, which is huge implication for companies in China, but also Korea and, and, um, and Japan and European countries trying to get their goods to Asia, which can't do by pipeline or, or by, by airplane. You got to do it by ship. And Maersk is one of, you know, from Dan- Denmark, you know how small Denmark is as a country and a population, you know, has one of the world's best shipping companies in Maersk. And they, these guys are really interested in these topics and what Canada's doing. But we have to invest in this time, effort, and money, independent of the defense issues. Well, there's just a ton there, Charlie, as there is in the book. It's called The Age of Consequence, Ordeals of Public Policy in Canada. Charles McMillan, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Great pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.